If you were to die right after Mass today, that would be tragic, but if you were to die and you came before God and God was to ask you, why should I let you in? What's your answer? What's your ticket? Why should, I, why should I allow you into heaven? I recently read a survey. Out of that survey, nine out of ten people, Christian people, were asked this question, and they said, basically because I'm a good person. That's why they should get in. I'm a good person. Every single one of them was wrong. So what's the answer? If I came, if you came before me, I'm God, and I say, why should I let you in? What's your answer? This is your turn. You're merciful. It's good. Good. Christ, because your son died for me. That's it. That's it, you guys. Your, his blood. And I have... He died for me, and I have let him redeem me. That's the only answer to that question. I got nothing. You got nothing except him. Now, you might sit back and be like, wow, that sounds awful. Protestant of you this morning, Father. Faith alone, right? What about good works? Here's the deal. Good works will follow if you understand that Christ died for you and you allow him to redeem you. Part of redemption, part of salvation is conforming your life to his. But that's it, you guys. Between you and me, we got nothing. We got nothing. Many people try to justify themselves through their work and they're falling into, tra into a trap. When you begin to think that if you just work hard enough, then you'll be saved? That's a heresy. <laughs> or if I, if I give enough money, then I'll be saved. Or if I help someone on the street, then I'll be saved. I remember I went down to get a, this thing. I'm not going to mention because you might give away too much. But I went, to get, I, I went to get this thing, and I said to the guy, I said, you know, I need this thing. And he had this business. And he said, how about I just give it to you? And I'm like, that'd be great. And he's like, you know, does that mean I'm saved? And I'm like, no, but I appreciate the free thing. That was really kind of you. But I think a lot of us have that in our head. If we're just nice people, that that's enough. And this is exactly what the Pharisee has fallen into in the gospel. He walks up, and I love the wording that Jesus uses in the parable, right? It says he takes up his place in the temple, and he speaks this prayer to himself. Oh God. Who's he speaking to? Himself. How does he address himself? Oh God. He has taken all of religion and put it into his own little box. He's the God of his own faith. Now the Pharisee's not a bad guy. I mean, he tells us how good he is. He fasts twice a week. How many of you fast ever? He pays 10% on his entire income. How many of you tithe? But he's forgotten that God's in control, not him. The tax collector, on the other hand, has got it right. 
If I can paraphrase this prayer, he's basically saying, God, I got nothing without you. I owe you everything, and without you, I'm lost. You are mercy and love itself, and that is all I have to cling to. You guys, left to our own devices, we tend to see the world and relate to it from a very narrow standpoint of our own desires, our own expectations, our own egos. We see the world through the distorted lens of selfishness. The best moments in life, though, are when something breaks through our selfishness, shatters our ego, and it allows us to see things as they actually are because we're not in control anymore. We're not forcing ourselves onto the situation, imposing our egos into these different situations to control them. I've seen this in a few areas of my life. I want to give you just three examples. The first is trying to learn a foreign language. I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a foreign language. I had to learn both Spanish and Italian. And I suppose you could count Latin and Greek, although I'm not proficient in those two. But when you learn a foreign language, wow, does it shatter your ego. And what we tend to do, at least what I tend to do with, is I took English and imposed it onto Spanish, trying to make Spanish work like English works. Well, that's impossible. English is the most messed up language, you guys. Did you know that? It follows, it doesn't follow any rules. Kind of sounds like America at this point. But the Romance languages, the Latin-based languages, all follow rules, and they all are similar. But if you try to impose English on it, you very quickly look like a moron. When I was living in Mexico, I said to the family I was with, something happened, I can't remember, and I wanted to say, I was embarrassed. And so I said to the, I said to the, the mother of the family, I said, estoy embarazada. So, because it sounds like embarrassed, right? Embarazada sounds like embarrassed. That's an English word. I actually told them I was pregnant. <laughs> I remember in Italy, I went into a, a clerical shop. I needed new collars, and they had these wonderful enrolled, and they had these wonderful linen collars. And I said to the guy, I coletti de legno. And he said, No, padre, no, I coletti de legno. I coletti de lino. And what I had asked for was wooden collars. And he said, There are no wooden collars, but we do have linen collars if you would like one. I finally got to the point where I just let English go. And I let Spanish, and I let Italian, and I let the immersion of the experience form me. And when I did that, you guys, I began to speak a different language. I entered a new world, a new culture. And it was beautiful, but it only happened once I let go of my preconceived ideas about what language should be. The second place I've seen this is in hunting. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but I just got back from my elk hunt. Bet you didn't think I could weave it into a homily that fast, did you? <clears throat> but one of the things that I noticed, so I'm, I'm a deer hunter, right? I am not an elk hunter, but I thought this would be fun, so I went. So I just looked at elk, and I'm like, they're big deer, right? Wrong. Elk are way smarter than deer. As one hunter up there put it, he said, you shoot deer, you hunt elk. They're way smarter, and if you try to hunt them as you hunt deer, you will lose every time, and that's what happened to me. I lost every time. I lugged my fat butt 
all over the mountain. And I am not in good shape. I know that's hard to believe. But man, was it exhausting. It is bizarre to me how an animal the size of a horse can be 200 yards from me and I can't see the thing. And there's 20 of them. And so it wasn't until I finally let go of my preconceived notions about deer hunting and asked the hunters that were there, how do you actually hunt elk? And they showed me. And so we got up really early and we got into this place. You had this perfect little spot. And I saw this one at about 700 yards and it was looking away from me. And I'm like, I'm going to shoot it. And he's like, stop. If you shoot, you're like, again, if you shoot a deer, it's going to probably die eventually. You shoot an elk. You don't hit it right, it will run for 10 miles, and you'll never find it. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting. He's like, just be patient, just be patient. He's like, let me call. So he's call calling, he's call calling. I'm like, here we go, here we go. And I'm being patient, and I'm calm, and I'm, and I'm letting my ego go, and I'm following the hunter, and I watched that elk go over the ridge and disappear forever. And I looked at him, and I'm like, all right, now what? And at that moment, there was this huge bugle. If you've ever heard an elk bugle, it is, it's majestic, man. And the, this guy I'm hunting with, he's like, holy sugar, there's another one. And I'm like, well, let's go get it. And he's like, no, just sit. Let me do what I do. And I'm like, all right, all right, do your thing. And all of a sudden, he's making me call, call. All of a sudden, this big five by six comes out of the trees. About 550 yards, just, poof, wounded it. <laughs> Eventually I got up, I killed it, and it was a beautiful thing. But the point is, is that I had to let go of my understanding of deer hunting, that I was trying to impose on elk hunting. It wasn't until I did that that things finally opened up, and it was a beautiful world. And I actually got the animal. The fourth and final, or third and final way that I've seen this is in my own life. The more I try to make things happen, you guys, the more I impose my will onto things, the worse it gets. But if I just say, Jesus, I got nothing. I need your help. It's amazing what happens. And I can't explain why. But that's the way it is. And it's not always pleasant either. But in the long run, it works out. I have been here for four years and I finally feel like things are really moving in a good direction here. Every decision that I've tried to make, I have taken to my chapel. When things happen, I just kneel and I say, Jesus, I, got, I don't know what to do. This is your church. These are your people. And he has provided along the way every single time. Why? Well, I want to leave him. I don't want to leave me. I want to leave his legacy. And God gives the grace. We just need to let him do it and go to him and not impose our wills, which man are we good at. Wow, are we good at doing that. I want to end with this. I was thinking about this. Have you ever read in the paper or watched on the news or heard about a friend and it's just a terrible situation and you sit back and you say to yourself, if that ever happened to me, I don't know if I could make it. I don't know if I could handle that disease. I don't know if I could handle that kind of tragedy. I used to say that all the time. 
and I don't ever want to say it again. But I've seen time and time again in my priesthood is that when a situation comes, and not before, God will give the grace for that situation at the time. That's the life of the Christian. That's the life of trust. That's the life of surrender. That's the life of humility. And that's why you and I say, I don't know how that person's doing it. It's because God is giving them a grace that he's not giving to us. And someday it's going to happen to you. It's not if tragedy is going to come, it's when and how bad. And when it comes, will you have the humility to let go and let him provide the grace in the present moment? Or will you control it? Will you be like the tax collector and say, I got nothing, Lord. You have to provide for me. Or you like the Pharisees say, I'll take care of it, God. Thanks. I got this. Because what you and I need more than anything is to allow him to lead. To receive each and every single grace that God gives in the present moment. To really believe that he died for us. And he did it to save us. And he's faithful. He doesn't lie. He doesn't trick us. To open our minds to different. To not what's the same. I love in The Chosen, that TV series, Jesus is always talking about, he's like, well, we're doing it this way. And the apostles are like, well, we've never done it that way. And at one point he turns to him, he said, get used to different. Get used to different. We, like the tax collector, got nothing. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we will be on the way to salvation. God is faithful. We are not alone. And when we truly believe that and live it, a whole new world will open up to us. It's called the world of faith. All we have to do is let go and let him provide. Jesus, we beg you this morning for the grace to let go and let you love us.